The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. When I was growing up, there was a Gatorade campaign. Maybe you remember the jingle. It went like this. It said, sometimes I dream that he is me. You've got to see that's how I dream to be. I dream I move. I dream I groove. Like Mike, if I could be like Mike. I want to be, I want to be, I want to be, I want to be like Mike. If I could be like Mike. How many of you remember that campaign, that slogan? As a middle school kid or a high school kid, elementary school kid, whatever age that was, I remember how impressionable it was. There were many days where me and my friends, we would gather behind his house and we would lower the basketball hoop to seven feet and we would jump off from what we would say is the free throw line with our tongues extended one hand trying to dunk the basketball. And what we found out during that time was no matter how much Gatorade we drank, we would never be like Mike. Even today, I go to the Y and I play basketball and there are 30 and 40 year old men driving to the hole with their tongue sticking out because it has been burned into their brain. They want to be like Mike. Gatorade was capitalizing on a truth that we do not want to admit, which is that we are highly impressionable people, that we imitate people. That's why they spend millions of dollars on 30-second Super Bowl ads, because we imitate what we see. Paul is writing to the church of Philippi, And they have been imitating people that Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ. But today he's going to call us to imitate somebody else. And it's probably not who you're thinking. If you would please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 17 and go through verse 4, 3. Just to remind you, Paul planted the church in Philippi. Uh, He is now in Rome in prison and is writing back to the Philippians, and he's reminding them that whether they like it or not, they will imitate somebody. And so he calls them to imitate someone other than the enemies of the cross of Christ. Let's read together Philippians chapter 3, it's page 981 in the Red Bible, page 1454 in the Children's Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through 4, 3. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, excuse me, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. Yes, 
I ask you also, true companions, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word, God, pray that you would reveal to us how we too often imitate those that are enemies of the cross of Christ. Lord God, put in our lives role models, people, lovers of Jesus that we can imitate. Help us, Lord God, to be conformed to your image. In Christ's name, amen. Again, the Philippians have been imitating who Paul calls enemies of the cross of Christ. They had adapted their values and their passions and their pursuits. And so Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me. Now, at first glance, this seems like a very arrogant request, doesn't it? Imitate me. Be like me. You know, when I read this, I think, wouldn't Paul say, be like Jesus? Why is Paul saying, be like me? Well, Paul is not saying we should imitate him because he is spiritually perfect or morally perfect. In fact, just three verses earlier, Paul confesses how imperfect he is. He says, now that I ha- not that I have already obtained this, talking about perfection, or am already perfect. And so Paul knows that he is imperfect. And so when Paul says, imitate me, he's not saying, be perfect like I am perfect. In fact, he is confessing the exact opposite of that. Paul is saying, because you are not perfect, because I am not perfect, we must live as lovers of the cross of Jesus Christ. And we must not live like enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. All of us, all of the saints at one time have been enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. But now you have been redeemed, you have been saved, and the cross has become beautiful. And so live not as an enemy of the cross of Jesus Christ, but live like lovers of the cross of Christ. And so he calls them to imitate him and his love for the cross and to imitate those who love the cross as he does. And so what we're going to see in this passage today is that lovers of the cross of Christ are identified by three things. Lovers of the cross of Christ love the lost. Lovers of the cross of Christ love heaven. And lovers of the cross of Christ love one another. This is a very practical sermon that Paul is getting at. As he lays out the doctrines of humility and love in Philippians 2, now he is pressing it home in the hearts of believers. First, we are to love, the, love as lovers of the cross of Christ. We are called to love the lost. Now, Paul starts with a warning, and so we'll get to that later, loving the lost. But Paul starts with a warning that although we are called to be lovers of the lost, that we are called not to imitate the lost. Look at verse 18. He says, for many of us, whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You know, it's so interesting. Paul uses this term enemies of the cross, enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't think anybody in today's society, maybe there are some, but I don't know of anyone who would say, I am an enemy of the cross of Christ. I don't see people picketing out in the cul-de-sac or out in the roundabout with signs that have a cross with a slash through it or say, I hate the cross. And so what does Paul mean by enemies of the cross of Christ? Well, I think it's not only people that oppose Christ and oppose the cross, but includes all that are indifferent towards it. I think this is a very inclusive term. 
that all who do not love the cross of Jesus Christ are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so there are many, even religious people in the church in Philippi, in the church in Green Bay, although they come to church, they come not because they love the cross of Christ, but because they want to check the box, because they want to make themselves feel better. And Paul says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. This is not an arrogant claim because Paul himself was the enemy of the cross of Christ. We ourselves, before we knew him, are enemies of the cross of Christ. And so Paul tells us that we are not to walk as those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. That we are not to imitate those who do not know the truth. That do not treasure Christ above all else. In Luke 6, Jesus says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Paul knows that the Philippians are following blind guides. And we do the same. Now, I want to make just kind of a tangent. We need to be clear here because it isn't saying that we can't follow or imitate the lost in anything. If if someone wants to show me how to shoot a bow and arrow, I don't need to understand their theological understanding of Jesus Christ, right? If if I want to imitate someone on how to weld or how how to run a business, I don't necessarily need to know everything that they believe. But what Paul is gearing us here is that we must be vigilant, that although we might imitate people and things and trades of this world, that we must not imitate those that do not know Christ when it comes to issues of ultimate truth, of what is right, of what is wrong, of religion, of priorities. Our desire in such areas is to imitate Christ and those who follow Christ. And so our guide should not be those that do not know Christ, but our guide, those that we imitate, should be those that love the cross of Jesus Christ. After my senior year of high school, I came to know the Lord. And I went off to college and I joined a fraternity house. And as I was a part of that fraternity house, I learned some really good things. I learned from other people how to wash dishes for the first time. And we had to do a lot of it our freshman year. I learned how to clean bathrooms for the first time. I learned how to wash clothes that colors and whites don't go in the same thing. I had learned a lot of good things, and I imitated other people that knew how to do it. But there were other things that I also imitated that I shouldn't have. I imitated the way that they treated women. I imitated the way that they regarded alcohol and how they spent money. I often imitated in very inappropriate ways how they would find a good time. And as much as I thought I was out of my house and I was my own independent individual, the reality was I was imitating all of those that were around me. We are way more impressionable than we think we are. We will imitate those that we see. And there are enemies of the cross of Christ all around. And God calls us not to imitate them when it comes to your priorities and your values and your truths but to imitate those that love the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, why should we live different? Paul goes through here and lists out why we should not live like those that are enemies of the cross of Christ. You know, for me, when I was in my fraternity house and I saw those other guys that didn't know Jesus or love Jesus and the way they lived, it seemed like a very appealing lifestyle. It felt like a, a very pleasurable and fulfilling lifestyle. 
And so the question is, why would we not imitate those that do not know Christ? Well, Paul gives us four reasons here. The first is this, that we must not imitate the lost because their God is their belly. This means that they live a life of self-consumption. They worship themselves. They live life for their own appetite. They're slaves to their own selfish cravings. They live no more than to please themselves. Everything they do is to satisfy their pleasure, build their fame, and give themselves glory. And we are called in God's word to satisfy God's pleasure, to build God's fame, and to live for God's glory. And so we must not imitate the lost because their God is their belly, but also because their glory is their shame. The things that God counts shameful, they count as profit. The things that God counts shameful, they boast in and they hold up as their credentials in this world. Whether it be their romantic exploitations or their making money at all costs or their graduation up of the ladder in corporate at the cost of other people. For God, this is despicable, but for them, it is their glory many times. And so God says, do not walk as them because the glory is their shame. Thirdly, Paul says that we should not mimic them because not only is their God, their belly and their glory is their shame, but their minds are set on earthly things. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary puts it this way. I'll just simply let him share it to you. He says, in our day, America is preoccupied with sex and the self. It is committed to a materialism designed to satisfy the individual's selfish desires. Our values are becoming so reserved that honesty is increasingly novel. Chastity is despised and mocked. And a word in behalf of law, justice, or personal integrity is often ignored or laughed down. This is the way things are, but it should not be surprising. But Christians are called to an exemplary walk in the Bible. They are told to live a life worthy of the calling they have received. They are called to walk wisely with respect and in the light. And so we are called not to mimic those that are around us, but to model ourselves after Jesus Christ and those who love Christ. Fourth and finally, Paul says, we should not walk as a lost walk. Not only because their God is their belly and their glory is their shame and they have their mindset on earthly things, but finally, because their end is destruction. Jesus says in Luke 9, says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That is not the way that the world moves forward. The world says, satisfy yourself. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? What does it profit a man if he gains the American dream but forfeits his soul? What does it gain a man to get that woman that he has wanted his entire life and yet forfeit his soul? What does it gain a woman to get that house that she has always longed for and yet forfeit her soul? It is so tempting to imitate the wrong people. So often we do not want to imitate the Pauls and the Timothys and the Epaphroditus because they are humble and they are meek and they are lowly and they are quiet. And they're not the people that are exalted in this world. They're not the people that make the commercials. 
We all imitate someone. Who do you imitate? Who do you imitate when it comes to generosity? Who do you imitate when it comes to hospitality? Ladies, who do you imitate when it comes to appropriate dress? Who do you imitate when it comes to how to live single or married? Or your views on divorce or family or kids? Who do you imitate when it comes to how you speak and conduct yourselves at work? Who do you imitate in your understanding of heaven and of hell and of ultimate truth? So often we want to surround ourselves with popular people, famous people, powerful people, people that will tell us just what our itching ears want to hear. But we are called to imitate the humble, the meek, the lowly, that tell us the difficult truths. Paul challenges that we must not imitate the lost. And yet, we must love the lost with all our hearts. Look here in verse 18. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears. Can you imagine him dictating this letter that is being written down? Weeping, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul does not idolize them. He does not mimic them or imitate them. But Paul loves the loss so much that he is physically moved to tears. Because their God is their belly. They do not know the great and glorious God that we sing about on Sunday mornings. Because their glory is their shame. They do not know the glory that is to come, which we'll read about in the next verse. Because their minds are set on earthly things, they don't have purposes beyond achieving and extending their own kingdom. But I think the reason why Paul weeps the most is that first reason. It's because their end is destruction. You know, when you drive home from work or when you drive home from church for the millionth time and you pass those houses for the millionth time, does it ever move you to tears to know that those who are not in Christ, their end is destruction? Paul calls us to love the lost more than anybody else does, even though we are not called to imitate them. If you're here today, And you do not know Christ. And I am so glad you're here if you are. This might feel like a very awkward sermon. But we want to tell you the truth. Not because we want to judge you. But because we love you. And the truth is a hard truth. But it is a glorious truth. You know, the world has told you that there is no hell. The world has told you that if there is a hell, hell is what hell is, is it's just a gathering of your old drinking buddies. That's what hell is. It's an enjoyable, pleasurable thing. But the world is lying to you. At least according to Jesus, the world is lying to you. Jesus says hell is not a joyous place. It is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so, because we love you so much, because I love you so much, I would jeopardize you ever coming back here that you might hear the truth. And I want you to hear the truth so clearly. And this is the truth that all of us have committed treason against God by our sin because we were all enemies of God. And yet God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile his enemies to his heavenly father. 
And if we trust in Christ for our salvation, if we trust in him, we are no longer enemies of God, but we are friends of the God of the entire universe. And we want that so much for you because it is such a joyous and glorious thing. It transforms our God from our belly to be the one true, wonderful, and glorious God. It turns our glory from being in the achievements of this world to the heaven that we are bound for. And it changes our end from destruction and to glory for all eternity. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Christ. We must not imitate enemies of the cross of Christ, but we love them with all of our hearts because Jesus loved us when we were enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 20. We see not only should we love the lost, but we should also love heaven. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's, he's, he's contrasting the end of destruction. But our citizenship is in heaven. He doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven or our citizenship might be in heaven. But for all who are in Christ right now, at this moment, your citizenship is in heaven. If you're like me, you probably take citizenship for granted. I have been at certain churches where there's a lot of uh, refugees who have become U.S. citizens. And if you can see the joy in their eyes when they become a U.S. citizen, it's a wonderful thing to be a part of. It makes you realize how much you take it for granted. In the Philippian church, Roman citizenship was a highly coveted prize. Some were born as Roman citizens, but many paid a very high financial price to become Roman citizens. The other way they could become Roman citizens would be to serve in the military for a long time. So many men served in the military for many, many years so that they could become Roman citizens. The, the church of Philippi, the city of Philippi, was actually a retirement community for many of the Roman soldiers. And so in the church of Philippi, I'm assuming that there were some that were Roman citizens and some that were not. And so they would have understood the importance of citizenship. They would have known how important it was to be a Roman citizen. Even the apostle Paul became a Roman citizen or was a Roman citizen. And we see the benefits played throughout his life. If you remember back in Acts 16, just very quickly, when, when Paul went to Philippi and he proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was thrown in prison. He was beaten and then thrown in prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then we read in Acts 16, verse 37, as they were releasing Paul from prison, Paul said this, he says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words so that the magistrates, to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. I share this with you because I think citizenship is something that we don't understand the weight and the gravity of. Paul, being a Roman citizen, was able to avoid being beaten. He was able to get a fair trial. Roman citizenship had a wide range of privileges and protections. It gave you the right to vote, the right to hold public office. Roman citizenship allowed you to make legal contracts and hold property. It kept you from paying some taxes and some legal obligations. Roman citizens couldn't be tortured or whipped or scourged, nor could they receive the death penalty except for treason. Roman citizens 
had the right to a legal and fair trial, and they even had the opportunity to appeal to Caesar for their court case. Everyone who read Paul's letter knew the great privilege of Roman citizenship. However, Paul is saying there is another citizenship available to all who trust in Christ, and it is an infinitely greater citizenship. It is a heavenly citizenship. Roman citizenship may have gotten Paul an audience with Caesar himself, but heavenly citizenship gets us an audience with the God of the entire universe. Roman citizenship probably would have provided him great protection from the enemies in the world, but our heavenly citizenship guarantees us protection from all eternity. Roman citizenship would have included them in the most powerful and expansive empire the world has ever known. But heavenly citizenship gives us and end with the most powerful and unending empire of the kingdom of God. Paul continues. He says, and from it, from heaven, our our homeland, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. Their glory is their shame. This is our glory. By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Scripture tells us that those who are in Christ, when they die, their souls go to be immediately with Jesus. But their bodies lay in the ground or in ashes, whatever you decide. And with his strength, Christ will come and crush all of his enemies. And he will display his power, not just in that, but in raising from the dead all of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 describes it. It says, we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Your resurrected body will be a glorious body. It will be a perfected body. It will be like Christ's body. I found this verse in 1 Thessalonians 4 this week. I've never seen it before. But it's such an awesome picture of that coming day. It says, For the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise. Do you long for that day? Do you love that day of heaven when the kingdom will come in full power? Living in America, being a citizen of America is a great privilege, but so often it keeps us from longing for that greater privilege of heavenly citizenship. So often we are captivated by far lesser blessings. John MacArthur relates this in a sermon that he was preaching. He says, there will be in heaven the elimination of all the sin that remains in us. There will be the elimination of everything that inhibited us from doing what God wanted. There will be perfect freedom from all evil. There will be no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no doubt, no fear, no temptation, no weakness, no failure, no hate, no anger, no quarreling, no more prayer, no more repentance, no more confession. There will be 
perfect pleasure, perfect knowledge, perfect comfort, perfect love, perfect joy. And yet we say, I'm not ready to go. And yet we say, I enjoy this earth too much. I don't want to go on to heaven. You see, the cross of Christ gave us citizenship for all eternity. And we are called to love and to long for that citizenship, which is in heaven. Paul continues, and he says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, because of your heavenly citizenship, because of your heavenly future, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. It does us well to be homesick for heaven, longing for heaven and loving heaven allows us to be obedient on this earth. Because when we recognize that something so great and so glorious is coming, it doesn't make us grasp for the things of this world that those that don't know Christ cling to so preciously. It allows those things to fade or diminish in importance that we might know Christ and make him known and enjoy him for all eternity. Thanksgiving is coming up and and probably about 10 or 12 years ago, I I celebrated Thanksgiving with Trisha's family. And the day before Thanksgiving, Trisha's mom shared with me the menu for Thanksgiving dinner. And they had it, you know, around two or three in the afternoon. And after hearing the menu, I was so excited. I decided, you know what? I'm not going to eat the entire day until we get to Thanksgiving dinner because I want to enjoy it so much. And so I went that day and I passed through breakfast and I passed through lunch. It ended up backfiring because my stomach kind of got smaller instead of bigger. But the point is, we don't need to be obsessed with gathering up treats of this life, always seeking to accumulate possession and pleasure because we know that the banquet is coming. The banquet is coming for those that are citizens of heaven. And so the more captivated we are with heaven now, the less we will find ourselves grasping and longing, having to have the pleasures this world offers. And so loving the cross leads us to loving the lost with all of our hearts. Loving the cross leads us to longing for heaven. And finally, loving the cross leads us to loving one another. Let's start in verse 1 again of chapter 4. He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat or admonish or exhort or beg. I don't know how to say it. And I entreat Syntyche to agree, literally to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me and the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. These women were godly women. Evidently, they were missionaries. They partnered with, God, with Paul in, in gospel ministry. Their names were written in the book of life, but they could not stop fighting. I don't know what it could have been. Maybe it was the color of the carpet in the nursery or whatever it might have been, but there was tension between them, and they could not get along. And so Paul is commanding them not to be identical, not to have the same preferences in all things, but to have the mind of Christ. Do you remember him communicating that in Philippians chapter 2? Let me remind you in verse 2, he said, Complete my joy, being of the same mind, being the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Same term used there in Philippians chapter 4. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of Jesus Christ. Lovers of the cross of Christ love reconciliation. Because when we look to the cross, when we gaze upon the cross, we know that this is the instrument of our reconciliation with God. Chad has, uh, Chad came to, to Green Bay to work at Jacob's Well in January. And in that time, he has said on multiple occasions that he is called to be here. What's the term? I can't find it. He's called, he's called to reverse the fall of conflict avoidance. He's called to reverse the call, the fall of conflict avoidance. He says it's pandemic, which evidently is bigger than epidemic. I didn't know that, but it's a pandemic that, that we avoid conflict at all costs. And we say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Maybe you're here and there is someone that is taking up too much room in your head. And you think the way of peace is just to ignore it and move on. Maybe there was someone at your last church or in your last Bible study or in your last community group who said something that hurt you or, or, or that frustrated you. And instead of seeking reconciliation, you just left the church. You just left the group. That's not what God calls us to do. He calls us to be agents of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God and Jesus Christ. And so we are called to love one another. Paul even says here in verse Three, he says, I ask you also, true companions, help these women. We as a church have the great joy and privilege of helping people being reconciled time after time after time. Whether it be father with son, husband with wife, neighbor with neighbor, our calling is to be agents of reconciliation and to reconcile with those that God has put in our church. Let me end with this. Today's passage started with, the Apostle Paul calling us to imitate him and others who love the cross of Christ. But I want to take just in this final minute to flip that around and to ask the question, who is imitating you? Do you have a faith that is worth imitating? At the beginning, we said, whether you like it or not, you will imitate other people. And if that is true, it's also true that whether you like it or not, other people will imitate you. And so the question is, is the imprint you are leaving on the lives of those around you one of a person who loves the cross of Jesus Christ? There's a country song, which is where all fun things are found. And um, by, by artist Rodney Atkins, and it's called Watching You. And the lyrics go like this. It says, driving through town, just my boy and me with a happy meal in the booster seat. A green traffic light turned straight to red. I hit my brakes and mumbled under my breath. His fries went a flying and his orange drink covered his lap. Well, then my four-year-old said a four-letter, my four-year-old said a four-letter word. It started with S and I was concerned. And so I said, son, now where'd you learn to talk like that? And he said, I've been watching you, Dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, Dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. The song goes on. He says, we got back home 
And I went to the barn, because it's a country song. He went to his barn. <laughs> or pickup truck, whichever. I bowed my head and I prayed real hard. said, Lord, please help me help my stupid self. Just this side of bedtime later that night, turning on my son's Scooby-Doo nightlight, he crawled out of bed and got down on his knees. He closed his little eyes, folded his little hands, spoke to God like he was talking to a friend. And I said, son, now where'd you learn to pray like that? And he said, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. Yeah, we're just alike. Hey, ain't we, dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. Whether you know it or not, other people are imitating you. And certainly there are ages where people are more impressionable. Your kids are impressionable, but so are your coworkers. So are your friends. So are your neighbors. And this exhortation today to be imitators of Paul is a reminder that we want others to imitate us in our love for the for the cross of Jesus Christ. Throughout Scripture, we are called to be examples. First Timothy 4 says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers as an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Titus 2 says, Show yourselves in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. First Peter 5 says, Shepherd the flock of God, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. We are called to be lovers of the cross of Christ, to be examples to others. Lovers of the cross of Christ are not imitators of the enemies of the cross of Christ, but they are lovers of the enemies of the cross of Christ because we were once enemies and God loved us. Lovers of the cross of Christ love and long for heaven because at the cross, Jesus made us citizens of heaven. And we know that we will head to a place where everything will be perfect. And lovers of the cross of Christ love one another. We must not avoid conflict, but engage courageously with tender-hearted love and compassion that we might be reconciled for our good, for the church's unity, and for God's glory. You will imitate others. And you will be imitated. Let it not be as an enemy of the cross of Christ but as a lover of the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at your word today, we confess there are areas, there, there, there are people that we look to for our moral compass that do not know you, do not love you. And so God, pray that you would conform us, that we might love the things that you love, Lord. May you put people in our lives that would example that for us. Tangible people in the flesh that we can look at and say, that's what it must be to love the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to your table today, we're reminded of your great love for us while we were your enemies, of your great love for us that made us citizens of heaven, of your great love for us that reconciled us to yourself. And so God, let us not take these elements flippantly, Lord, or casually. God, may they be set apart in our hearts with the divine purpose of reminding us tangibly of the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, that we might love it all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.